Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 19 of Logicast, the AWS News Podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata. You may recognize me or you may not because yesterday I decided it might be a good idea to shave off my beard. Turned out that it wasn't, so I've moved the microphone up a little bit so it's not quite so obvious. I'm joined as always by my colleague John Goodall. How are you doing today, John? Oh, I'm enjoying the role reversal because last time when I did that... I got the whole comments of you might not know who this is. It's the same guy. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I did take the mickey out of you when you shaved your beard off. So I deserve <laughs> anything that's coming back in my direction. And uh, we're also joined today uh, by a very special guest from across the pond, uh, Ben Ellis. So, uh, Ben, tell us a bit about yourself. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm a freelance uh, cloud architect, uh, 20 years of experience in software development and more recently on the cloud. Um, so, yeah, I'm a company of one. I'm focused on small businesses, nonprofits, uh, you know, kind of smaller, smaller end of the spectrum. I'm based in the Midwestern U.S. Um, largely, I've been a dark matter, you know, quote unquote developer uh, to coin something, to take something that uh, Scott Hansman coined, I believe. I've just been kind of doing my thing, working at, you know, working at companies and, and such over my career. And then just kind of recently became more involved in the community. I became an AWS community builder this past uh, go round of, of new inductees. That's been really exciting, it's been fun. I think you guys have just, is it, is it your first year or your second year as community builders? Well, I've got a bit of, bit of a funny story on that one. I am a year one community builder for the second time. So okay. uh, I actually have, I actually have two of these things. Okay. But no, but, but no backpack. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know why, but uh, I applied for renewal. I didn't get renewed, uh, but they said, don't worry, you can reapply. So I reapplied and uh, here we are, uh, year okay. one community builder for the second time round. Just my first go around, but I did okay. manage to win in the intro call, the mug of endless energy, which is just ridiculous. Nice. <laughs> Sadly, I have no uh, mug of endless energy, but uh, just like the Cubs, uh, I also I also have two hats. So uh, there we go. <laughs> so uh, well, it's great to meet you, Ben, and uh, it's great for us to be uh, leveraging this fantastic AWS Community Builder program. Um, so. Uh, as you know, if you've listened to the podcast before, uh, we're here to talk about AWS news. So every week, um, I curate a list of AWS news, which I share in my weekly AWS News Roundup newsletter. And then John and I uh, handpick a selection of those articles that we want to talk to you about in more detail. Um, so uh, we've got a selection of such articles uh, that John, Ben, and I will chat about. And the first one of those um, is from the AWS Compute blog, and it is entitled Best Practices to Optimize Your Amazon EC2 Spot Instances Usage. Um, and just one little comment from me on this before I hand over to John to talk about spot instances. I noticed some uh, other articles in the press recently that seem to be tracking spot instance usage and the fact that it, prices do seem to be increasing. So although it's still a very cost-effective way to run your EC2 workloads, um, like most things uh, in life these days, it's getting more expensive to do so. So I guess it's great timing for this article in terms of how to optimize your EC2 spot instances. But tell us a bit more about this, John. It's interesting that you bring that up because that's why I picked this one, because there's been a lot of bad press and a lot of noise and a lot of news about spot instance prices going up because historically they've been ridiculously cheap compared with on demand. Yes, the price has kind of moved up and down a little bit because it's demand based pricing and capacity based pricing, but it was always just stupidly affordable. Like if your application could cope with just things going away, which 
spoiler alert, they should be able to anyway. That's called resiliency. Then it was a great option. But it's not quite as cheap as it used to be. So I think this is, is not good timing so much as suspicious timing from AWS because <laughs> they put the price up a little bit and then they're telling people how to get the most out of it. So it's they're not trying to stop people from using this incredibly cost-efficient um, way of, of running compute, but they kind of want to bury the bad news a little bit, I think. So moving on from that kind of me being a cynic and being very suspicious, um, nothing that they're saying in here is any is, is new. It, it's always been the case with spot instances that you should be casting the widest net possible when doing your resource selection. You should be using as many different types of instances and instance families as you can possibly cope with. You should be using as many different AZs as you should possibly be able to manage because they're AZ based um, and so on and so on. Yeah, and it does say things like leverage spot placement scores and, and balance the fact that you can get cheaper ones or you can have ones that are reasonably priced but in um, capacity pools that have got more capacity so they're less likely to be taken away and that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, it's suspicious timing, but none of, none of what they're saying here is new, really. What are your thoughts on this, Ben? You know, I have not used spot instances in practice at this point, so I don't have a, a lot to add here. Um, so I did wonder, though, when, when I read this was... Uh, is it spot instances effectively selling off unused AWS capacity? So is the price going up because they've got less of it? It's usually what happens, isn't it? Supply and demand, I guess. I think so. I think so. Um, the only place I've really reliably used spot instances is in in um, backing in an EKS cluster and had pod or, uh, horizontal pod auto scaling and then the instant scheduler as well. So um, an instance would just be killed you'd get two minutes warning but or you'd have already spun a new one up and you'd move your pods and it was fine like nothing really cared that's the only place i've really used it um but yes i think this is there's less capacity because they're building out less servers or people are just putting more into aws so there's less spare going on perhaps so what are they recommending then um in terms of uh optimizing your spot instance usage well, it's, it's like I say, it's very little new here. It's diversify your instances. So use as many different types of instances as you can possibly manage. Um, obviously, you probably won't be able to swap between um, 64-bit and ARM instances. Maybe. Maybe you can't. Maybe you can. Um, look at the attributes versus rather than just the types of instances. So I need X amount of minimum CPU. Okay. What meets that? Um, spot placement scores, like I say, so it, it was, um, these are less likely to be taken away from you. And then they've got a new um, allocation strategy that they brought out. Well, they'll do a lot of the heavy lifting for you because there were three strategies before, which was um, capacity optimized, capacity performer, uh, capacity prioritized, and lowest price. Now they've introduced like a, a nice little middle ground where they're optimizing between price and capacity for you. So they kind of want to draw attention to that so that they're doing the the legwork for you there as well well at least they're trying to help people uh to do this optimization so yeah, i think kind of one thing i would throw in there is like as you're looking at all the options for instance types you really be mindful of testing the different instance types with your workloads because I, I haven't used spot instances but having just come through a migration project uh, my client had a a set of servers that run an older version of Ubuntu and you know, you're stuck like a, an M4 instance was as high as you could go. M5 would start breaking things. So 
besides they don't get too click happy or what have you going through the console and choosing instance types to kind of widen the net and you know, make sure that it'll, it'll actually work with your workload. Good point. Thanks for that, Ben. Um, okay, let's we'll just update your workloads. Good grief. <laughs> it's yeah. easier. It's, it's, yeah, that that's always the uh, that's always the hard option, though, isn't it? Updating mm -hmm. the workloads. Let's just uh, fix no. the problem with infrastructure. Right. Choose your hard. It's something that I've I've taken very much to heart. It comes more from the fitness world, but running outdated things on old infrastructure is hard because everything's outdated. Mm. Upgrade, upgrading so you can run a new infrastructure is hard because upgrades are hard. Pick one, choose mm. your hard, and eventually someone will make the choice for you. Right. Well, John, because you because you said hard so many times in that sentence, that's a nice segue into the next article uh, about building CIS hardened golden images and pipelines uh, with EC2 image builders. So. We like CIS. Uh, we like to try and help our managed services customers align to CIS benchmarks, etc. So uh, I'm sure that uh, by building CIS hardened golden images and pipelines with EC2 Image Builder, that can help us along that journey. So uh, what can you tell us about this one, John? Well, as you say, we work with CIS kind of benchmarks for AWS quite a lot. And for listeners that aren't aware, CIS is the Center for Internet Security, I want to say. It's, it's other standards of security. It's one of the two, uh, probably security. And it, it says things like you don't, don't have security groups open to the internet, don't have management ports open to the internet from on your knuckles, uh, don't put credentials on your EC2, that kind of thing. So that's CIS. That's kind of what we use them for primarily. Golden Images is a, a way of building AMIs. So you have your, this is how we uh, build an image, and then you can kind of build on top of that if you want to. And then you can deploy your apps and so on and so on. Hardening an image means things like, um, I don't know, shutting SSH off of the default port and moving it onto port 50, for argument's sake. Um, it's locking down common attack vectors, and it's making sure that it can't be easily breached in the event that someone does try and do something a bit naughty. So there's a process you go through to do that. It's called image hardening, server hardening. CIS have got some pre-hardened images, and then the EC2 image builder has some kind of click opsy point, you know, drop and drag solutions for adding additional hardening to those images or to any image. So you can kind of pick one that's pre-hardened, or you can pick one that isn't and apply some hardening, or you can pick one that is pre-hardened and apply some more hardening because standards change, things change, and you and the image might not change quite as quickly as the re-hardening would change. It's quite interesting because, as I say, it's kind of click-ops, so you don't need to be using Packer or anything like that. You don't need to understand Ansible or the command line or really anything. You can kind of just go through the image builder and go, yes, I want some hardened images, please. And it kind of does it, which is nice. It is. It's quite nice. Any thoughts on this one, Ben? Again, I have come more from, you know, PaaS and serverless backgrounds. I haven't done as much. I did, I did go into the image builder once because of this previous client I've had that uh, uh, wasn't real clear to me how to get started and it looked a little bit difficult to use, but that's, that's the only time I've used it. So, um, Yeah, well, this is old cloud, isn't it? This is service yeah. in the cloud, which is not really what the cloud is all about yeah. these days, is it? So. Yeah, this is uh, this is a very we we normally uh, very serverless heavy, and we've uh, kicked off this episode mm. 
with full-on servers in the cloud, <laughs> <laughs> which is very unusual for the Logicast podcast. So, uh, yeah, sorry to have uh, caught you off guard with that one. But, um, oh, yeah, no uh, yeah, plenty of people still running servers in the cloud. Um, perhaps not the best thing to be doing, but uh, if that's what you need, then, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, what's the revenue numbers from AWS? I think 60% from EC2 still. So this isn't going anywhere by any measure. And if you do run workloads, have to run workloads, want to, need to, whatever, it's important that you do use secured images. Yep. Hardened. Say it one more Hardened. time, John, before we move on. <laughs> it's going to sound like the shipping forecast, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, Moving swiftly on then to uh, an article that I think you do have uh, some opinions on, Ben. Um, this one is about uh, getting data to the cloud faster with AWS Snowball Edge devices. Now, I almost want to order one of these just because I think they're cool. Um, I have no use for it. I don't have any huge amounts of data at home that I need to get into S3, but I just want to. I mean, I have seen one, actually. I've seen them at the AWS Summit and, and uh, reInvent, but uh, they're just cool devices. They're so rugged, you can put data on them and drop them, and uh, the data will still be there. And they've got the uh, the e-ink label, which is basically a Kindle built into it for uh, shipping, which is just it's just cool, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, this is an article from Storage Review about getting data to the cloud faster with AWS Snowball Edge devices. So, yeah, Ben, what, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, so basically, <clears throat> this is a storage review had a 100 terabyte file that they had uh, generated that they were like, well, we want to keep this file. We don't want to necessarily get rid of it, but where are we going to put it? So I thought, well, this is a great opportunity to, to get a snowball edge and, and bring it in house and transfer this file. And I think they quickly realized that the uh, five terabyte S3 limit was going to cause problems. So then it just became more play. So they thought, well, let's just generate, I forget how many digits of pi, 500 trillion was it digits of pi just to generate enough files that they could split up and have 200 gigabyte files to, to load onto this uh, Snowball Edge. Um, so they uh, they kind of walked through in the article how they ordered the Edge. <clears throat> and then while the Edge is being delivered, they, they prepared their files. And then once it came, uh, I believe it took them, was it a day or so to do all the transfers locally? It was a day or two, yeah. <clears throat> Versus, you know, weeks and weeks trying to do it. Um, over the wire um and like and they ordered a second one for some reason i never really understood why what they did with the second one but, <laughs> you know 700 bucks a pop i think it was that's not too terribly expensive but I, I don't know if my wife would appreciate that if i had one to show up on our door front just to play with <laughs> so um yeah pretty cool i mean who doesn't want to have one of these to Play. And, and the cool thing is this is not it's not just storage i mean when you first look at these you think of it just as like a storage device but it is an ec2 instance that you can basically have sitting next to your desk um, attached to the cloud doing things that ec2 does um, and then and of course they have <clears throat> um, versions of this that are more compute optimized as well um when i read through the it funny. Day, oh go ahead it's funny everyone sort of says i want to play with it i want to play with it you may or may not be familiar, Carl should be. The um, A-Cloud Guru people did that for part of their training. They just ordered one and did a training video, and he, he put like a one gigabyte file on it and shipped it back again. <laughs> they must. What would they have been thinking? Like, seriously, the receiving people going, huh? But, yeah. you know, good for training. I just, I can't imagine a hundred terabyte file. Yeah. You I don't work at NASA. Crazy. <laughs> no, I don't work at NASA, no. No. Um, that is rocket science. 
Yeah, um, it is. Yeah. So you're saying it's, it's not rocket science, but that is rocket science. It is actually rocket science. I think it's quite interesting that they, they title this article as um, getting data to the cloud faster. And I don't think people realize this because they're so used to streaming and Netflix and, I don't know, in the UK, 50 or 60 megabit downloads. I don't know what it is in the States, but, you know, these, these kind of reasonably okay download speeds. But if it's more than a few terabytes, it is actually quicker even just like across a LAN to put it on a hard drive and walk it across to the other side of the building. It's mm-hmm. just, people don't really get that, I don't think. So the fact that it took them a couple of days to move it onto the device and then a couple of days in shipping and then another couple of days in AWS's data center, about a week, I think, total, it would have taken months to move that, years possibly, to move that much data over a, uh, a public internet or a VPN or even a direct connect connection because the internet isn't actually that fast when it comes to large data volumes. Mm-hmm. More reliable for that matter, right? <laughs> no. Make sure the file doesn't have interruptions that could cause you to have to start over again. <laughs> and we're nearly there. We're ne- oh, no. <laughs> it doesn't have that happen, right? Mm. Okay, one, one thing, reading this article gave me a little bit of a flashback, a little bit of a PTSD for my, I think it was the first AWS cert I took was cloud practitioner, which I thought would be more business level, not, and I think it was that one that had a straight up, you've got this much data, is it faster to um, transfer, transfer it over the wire if you have this sort of connection or through a snowball? And so I'm in the little, I'm doing the proctored test, right? And I've got the little notepad thing that they give you. I'm trying to like convert <laughs> all the all the bits to bytes and try to figure out the transfer speeds and got me a little bit of a breaking out into a little bit of a sweat, but, uh, (laughs) is that the whiteboard erasable whiteboard with pen? Is that what you get in the U S as well? That's what we get in our testing centers here. You're not allowed paper. Oh, you're at home. Oh yeah. 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 And they don't give you, I think there might be like a virtual whiteboard, but who wants to use a mouse to draw with a whiteboard? So I had, I had just a little plain text editor to, to do all the calculations in and just wasn't, wasn't expecting that level of detail on a, on the cloud practitioner. <laughs> yeah, I've done that. I've done both the home proctored exams and the, um, the test center. And, and we, we've just, dis- I don't think we've discussed it on the podcast, but I know we've discussed it on a number of occasions, John, and my preference is absolutely get in the car or on the motorbike mm-hmm. and ride half an hour to the test center because I've got so much clutter in my office that you can't see on the camera, but if I was to move it around, you know, mm-hmm. and that whole room check thing that they do, it would take me a whole day to clear all this stuff out of here just to get my room to the point where <laughs> it, it passed the proctor check. It's easier just for me to jump in the car and go. And when you jump in the car and go to the test center, you get a little A4 sized whiteboard, erasable whiteboard with a, with a, that's a nice. felt marker that you can, you can write on and erase it. So uh, yeah, and you get bathroom breaks, you. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get you get bathroom break. Right? Yeah, yeah. No, oh, you don't get oh. one. No, no. That's where the mug of endless energy comes in. I think <laughs> <laughs> the mug of endless something else. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, on that note, uh, let's move on uh, to uh, oh, to our next great. article, um, which is. Uh, Another bucket. The uh, leaky S3 buckets. So you want to make sure, by the way, if you are doing that with your mug of endless energy, that it isn't leaky like this S3 bucket at uh, at Capita on this occasion. So, uh, of course, the leaky S3 buckets are always a firm favorite of the press. 
particularly the Register, who love their sensational headlines. Um, so the sensation is that not as sensational as some headlines we get from the Register, uh, but this one is entitled "Another Security Calamity for Capita." an unsecured AWS bucket. So uh, we know that uh, there's not much going on in the world of AWS when we start seeing more about uh, leaky S3 buckets. So there was a couple of them in, in the newsletter last week, I think. It's been a while since we've had leaky S3 buckets, but uh, here there is another one. So uh, tell us a bit about this one, John, because I know you had some strong opinions you were airing before we hit the record button on this one. <laughs> Yeah, so for the audience that's not based in the UK, Capita are a large outsourcing company that focus on things like government contracts and major department stores and, and that kind of thing. I have personal history with them because I looked into their graduate scheme and decided that I didn't want to work for them because I liked earning money and they didn't seem to want to pay any of it. So that so personal history. Um, right. So yeah, we haven't really heard a lot about leaky buckets lately. And I think that's partly because of the amount of work AWS have done to secure buckets by default. So that's probably certainly part of it. Probably certainly. I sound really convinced there. That's certainly part of it. However, this bucket appears to have been a little bit older and wouldn't have benefited from those, you know, private by default, encrypted by default kind of defaults. Because this is about um Benefit claimants, and again, for those outside of the UK, if you're out of work or you're disabled or long-term sick, you can get you get paid by the government so you don't starve to death, basically. But this looks like benefit claimant data from 2019 through 2021. Right, So it's a little bit older, wouldn't have had the advantages of those defaults that have come through, but realistically, someone like Capita should have known better. Yes, okay, it's Colchester City Council, Colchester mid-sized city in Essex, I want to say. I've driven past it a lot. Um, I wouldn't necessarily expect a, a, a county council, city council, to know very much about this. It's not their wheelhouse, but Capita should have known better. They really should have done. Doesn't really seem to have been a huge amount of PII in it. Might have been a bit, you never know. But yeah, they, they should have known better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's understandable how these things happen, but it's still, you know, not excusable for a big company like that with when I mean, you've got tools like uh, AWS config that can be monitoring for those types of, if it's just a wide open bucket, um, or you can use, I think Macy would have fit this pretty well too, right? Because there's probably enough PII that's identifiable, identifiable through the, uh, I forget what they're called in the UK, but like the social security numbers, basically the unique identifiers for each person like that should have been easy catch for something like Macy uh, to know that that's there. So yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you go down the article a little bit, it also starts talking about private pension schemes, talking about Capita as well, because, um, again, same sort of problem. Half a million active deferred or retired members' data was held on servers that had been accessed. So it's just, how is this being missed at this at the, in this mm -hmm. day and age? You know, how is this being missed? Negligence. Well, never we go assume, as far as to call it that, but uh, never assume malicious uh, malicious intent where incompetence is an option. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure there's nothing malicious going on here at all. It's uh, just something that's easily overlookable. But as you pointed out, Ben, there's plenty of tools. Whether those are the cloud native tool options or third party tools to that uh, are very cost effective, that you can just quickly scan all of your AWS environments and uh, and alert on these things um, immediately. 
Um, so there's, there's not really any excuse nowadays to not know about these things. Um, you know, the, it seems that what's happened here is people just not paying attention, I guess. so. It seems to be, and I know I say firms of this size should know better, but it seems to be endemic to large firms. I don't know what it is, but it, it, it feels like a that's not my job type attitude is what's coming through because it might have been kpmg it might have been i don't know not kpmg but it was another might have been, it was another large kind of consulting firm that had a similar issue and it was the whole thing was just a complete farce and no one took ownership no one took accountability there was no end-to-end viewing of anything and it very much feels like big firm syndrome that's not my problem that's not my job I'm sure there are plenty of smaller firms out there with leaky buckets. They just don't make as sensational headlines as the uh, the ones that we all know. So uh, yeah, um, they they escape the uh, the press coverage. But uh, yeah, nobody wants to be that next headline. So um, if you are listening and you are using S3 buckets, just run the tools, <laughs> find the public ones, and deal with it if they don't need to be public. Uh, it's not difficult. Which spoiler alert: they don't. At no point do they need to be public. Oh, we need to serve media out of it. Use CloudFront. There are. We need to be able to upload things to it directly. Okay, use pre-signed URLs. You know, talk to an architect. Talk to someone that's got a certificate in this. There is virtually no reason for buckets to be public at this point. That's a great point. Are there any reasons? Legacy setups that you don't want to rebuild. That's about it, I think. Back to that point again. Yeah, here we are again. Yeah. Choose yeah. your hard. We just wanted to get the word hard in again before the end of the podcast. Um, <laughs> Was it hard the... doing all that shaving? No, I actually the act of shaving I quite enjoyed. It was just the end result that I was not happy with. So uh, now I have several weeks or months indeed of uh, trying to grow that back. Um, well, not trying; it will grow itself. But uh, you know, <laughs> I don't need to do anything. I need to not do things. But uh, anyway, um, so uh, moving on. Uh, to the final article of this week um, and this one uh, is based on some again it's a it's a register article uh, based on some comments recently from Gartner and uh, another lovely register headline Gartner stop worrying and love the cloud with all its outages and locking so there's quite a lot in that title isn't it it's kind of like you should love the cloud even though it's not very good um, and we're all cloud people so, of course, we're going to be here to tell you that actually it is good and uh, you should love the cloud. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Ben, I think you had some opinions on this one yourself. Yeah. So, I mean, speaking of hard, multi-cloud, as they're talking about in this article, has got to be one of the hardest things to pull off in practice. Um, I think they actually mentioned uh, one of the – talked about active, active cloud, which I'm not even sure how you do that across cloud vendors. Like what is what are the steps to go? I mean, if you're using relational databases, you can't really do that to begin with because you got to have a writer node. DynamoDB is kind of the answer to that in AWS, but how do you do that across clouds? So anyway, so active, active would be terribly difficult. Um, but so I think, yeah, the, the bottom line for me is how much downtime can you tolerate? So um, if two hours is too much, then you've got to look at something else because even though he's in this article saying that, you know, Hey, just don't worry about it. There's going to be some outages. It's getting better all the time. There could still be an outage that, that takes the cloud down for many hours. You know, I don't know if I had one that spanned a day or more, you know, at least recently, 
but you're going to have outages. And sometimes that takes the control plane down too. So like you can't even like try to recover from something kind of on the fly because you know, it's everything is gone kaput. My, my first experience with this was when I was, is my first main application going to the cloud and it was an Azure and I deployed something. Of course, the customer didn't want any downtime. Like their expectation downtime was, you know, we want 100% uptime, which, you know, I didn't, didn't go into the details on that's not really theoretically possible, but so they had high expectations for, for uptime. And like two months later, lightning struck the uh, South data center in Austin and they just had like cascading failures. It took out like the, the whole management console. I, I'm assuming the APIs, like the management APIs were down too. I was just going through the console trying to, to recover. Um, so, I mean, it, it's gotten better for sure. And that's something he points out is that, you know, the, the data is suggesting that we're having less frequent outages and they're less severe and they're more contained to certain areas. But I think the pessimists in me, like it's going to happen again. So like, what, what is your tolerance? Because at some point you're going to have to deal with it most likely. So if you're, if you're a big company, you can afford to possibly do multi-cloud. But if you're a smaller player, like that's just not, I think, within the, the realm of feasibility. Multi-region is hard enough, let alone multi-cloud. Let's be realistic. The majority of outages are caused by your own code, not by the hosting provider. Let's be realistic yeah, here. Yeah. You know, when when... You're talking SLAs, and yes, that doesn't mean it's going to be up. It means you get money, but fine. When you're talking SLAs in three, four, five nines of availability, you're not, unless you are actually running your own data center and you are a god of running data centers, which you're not, no one is, you're not going to hit that. You're not, because they're just operating at a scale that you can't do. And especially with these, as you say, these smaller players that have historically run on servers in cupboards or under stairs or or mm -hmm. off of their laptop. And honestly, I've seen things like this is running the production website. Do not turn this off. Sticky note on a laptop in the corner of a room. Like what? You're not going to be able to get to that level. Those sorts of people aren't reading Gartner, in my experience. Um, so it's an interesting take. But yes, lock in is a thing. Just live with it because, as you say, multi regions hard enough. Right. And then you can't take advantage of the best of the cloud. Like, you know, we're all, like I said before, we're all big fans of serverless. Like, trying to do serverless multi cloud is even another layer of, of complexity because all the, all the systems and APIs are different. So, mm. you got to deploy code to different, you know, it just, it's not really, uh, not for the faint of heart for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And then you get to the things like, okay, well, we'll just run containers. Where are you going to host it? Well, not in any of the, the three players' um, options. So we're going to put it you know, on Docker Hub. Where do you think Docker runs? It's probably in AWS. Get real. I think the thing is nowadays when there is a cloud outage, it's so huge that half the internet is down anyway. So it doesn't really matter if you're down. You just need to wait for it to come back. <laughs> um, this was always my thing with um so do we need to be in more than one region if london goes down i'm going home <laughs> i can do yeah i think there were a few um highly publicized aws outages last year two or three but they were very oh, short one of them because no. there was this noise around an outage that took down the support center because mm. it was in North Virginia and the support center ran through North Virginia. So what did AWS do as a result of that? They re-architected it to not run exclusively through North Virginia. Genius. <laughs> yeah. Some of these things you wonder why they weren't done that way the first time. But, 
another, another tip here is don't deploy to us east one right deploy someplace else <laughs> that's, wrong. that's kind of ground zero for any sort of uh you know catastrophic file failures it seems like so absolutely absolutely so yep as the register said stop worrying and love the cloud with all its outages and locking but on that note, that's really all we've got time for this week, uh, which is a shame because I was enjoying today's discussion. Uh, thanks for listening. That was uh, season two, episode 19 of Logicast. Thank you very much, Ben, uh, for joining John and I today and giving your insights. And uh, we will we'll be back next week with another episode for you. See you again next time. <laughs>